Well, it's been a great morning already, hasn't it? It's such a blessing, though, to sing, isn't it? Maybe you've heard about the, the church member who once told their pastor, Pastor, I just want to hear the preaching. You know, all the singing is, is just delaying getting to the preaching. Just get to the preaching. And the pastor said, well, you don't like singing, do you? And he said, no, I don't. And the pastor said, well, you're not going to like heaven very much because there's going to be a lot of singing and worship there. And after that, the, the church member sang. It's a blessing to sing with you all and worship as a congregation. Now we do turn to the the Bible, the Word of God, and open it up. And I want to explain it. I want to apply it. I want to preach the Word to you this morning. We're in Romans chapter 10, back in the book of Romans. And chapter 10, 9 through 13, confessing Jesus as Lord. We've been making our way through Romans for some time. And we're right in the middle of a section here that is discussing the Jews and why they don't believe. One reason they don't believe is because they're not God's elect. That's Romans 9. And Romans 10, another reason they don't believe is because they have resisted, they have rejected the gospel. God has not saved them because they don't believe in Christ. They don't trust in Him for salvation. They trust in their own ways of salvation. And so we'll see that here previous to this text. You might recall last time I preached from Romans, I was in verse 5 through 8. So I want to start there to get the context because 9 through 13 continues with that. It states something in verse 8, then Paul shows the true way of salvation, and then 9 through 13, he now opens that up and says, anyone, not just you, but anyone who confesses Jesus as Lord and believes in his heart that he will be saved. So let's start in Romans 10, 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of law. So this is what the the Jews were proclaiming. They were using this Old Testament text here to then justify their works righteousness. They would quote, the man who does these things shall live by them. Quoting the Old Testament saying, if you obey the law, then you can earn your righteousness. But Paul says in verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will go down into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, leading to righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, leading to salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. There's a lot of gospels going around these days. Different gospels being proclaimed in different groups and churches and organizations and cults. They're not all the true gospel. Some people complexify the gospel. That's what we see here with the Jews in verse 5. They were trying to cite Moses to make it complex. You have to do all these things. And even after you've done all those things, that might not be enough. And we see that today, don't we, with different organizations and groups calling themselves Christian, saying you have to do all these things and get all these blessings and do all this stuff. Others today have said, well, we'll take care of that. We'll just make it pretty much easy for everybody to believe the gospel. We'll take out all the hard stuff. We won't cover any of that stuff about creation. We won't talk about hell. We won't talk about judgment. We won't even talk about the resurrection of Christ or sin. We'll just say, God loves you and has a good plan for your life. And if you come to our church, 
then God will save you and we will love you too. That is called easy believism. That's the opposite of making a complex gospel with hundreds of different rules. However, we have to go to the Bible to find the true gospel. God came and revealed the way of salvation to us. He had that put down in writing by the apostles here in the New Testament, but there's also much of it in the Old Testament. That's why Paul is quoting the Old Testament here. But it gives us the true gospel or the true way of salvation. The one way of salvation. The one way to obtain righteousness. Paul's saying in verse 5 that they were quoting Moses wrongly. Moses was talking about living in the land. Moses was talking about obeying the law and the nation of Israel in the land that God had given them. As long as they obeyed, he would let them live there. He would bless them. But when they disobeyed, he would take them out of the land. And that's exactly what he did in the exile. First with the northern tribes going to the Assyrian exile. And then the southern kingdom going to the Babylonian exile. And then 6 through 8, Paul opened up the truth here. The truth is that you obtain righteousness from God through faith. And he quotes the Old Testament here from Deuteronomy as an analogy. Who are you, he's saying, who are you to try to go up to God to get the true gospel? Or to go down under the ground into the pit to get the true gospel? And he compares that to Christ who's come down from heaven. We don't need to go to heaven to hear a word from God. Christ has came down and he's given us the word. We don't need to die and try to raise ourselves up and pretend that we're our own savior. Christ has already done that. So he finished that section there in verse 8 saying, just like Moses said to the Israelites, the word of God, the word of God that you need is near you. It's right there. You don't have to go to these places to find it. You don't have to find the cult that has this hidden secret, this hidden gem, and the only one that can unlock the key of salvation. It's right here, Paul says. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. The way of salvation has been revealed by God. And it's the word of faith, he says, that we are preaching. It's the word of faith that Paul preached, that all the people who traveled with Paul, that all the apostles and disciples preached. And now he's saying, it's this word that I write to you, Romans, in this letter. He's writing to Rome here to tell them the gospel, to remind them of the truths of the gospel. And now it's recorded for us to look at today. So let's continue on with 9 through 13. And here he shows us three truths about the gospel of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ by faith. So a short subtitle, the three truths about the gospel of righteousness. There's three truths that he's going to open up here. And it's going to correct the wrong thinking that the Jews had. And also it will correct the wrong thinking for us today as an application of all these gospels that are out there today. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. Not one way of many, but the only way, the only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so that's the truth that Paul is now writing about in this letter that he wrote here to the church in Rome. The first truth is the simplicity of the gospel message. Paul shows us here in verse 9 that the gospel is not a complex system. It's not a complex system of obeying all the laws of God to earn something. It's very simple. It's very simple. Believe and confess. Very simple. Believe and confess. He starts off by telling us that. By telling us that 
that confession is important. Just like Moses said back in Deuteronomy, he's going to start now with confession first and then talk about believing in the heart. That's backwards compared to what we normally think. We normally think, okay, you have a conversion, your your heart changes, the Lord regenerates you, you believe, and then you confess. And we recently saw some baptisms, didn't we, where people confessed in front of the whole church their faith in Christ, some of which were very new believers in Christ. Well, here Paul is reversed the order only because that's the order that Moses had given in Deuteronomy 34 that he just quoted back in verse 8. So the word of faith, the gospel that Paul and the apostles preach is the one that is in your mouth and that's when you confess and in your heart, that's when you believe. So verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord. The basic meaning of this word confess is that you agree with what's being said. He's not just saying you speak Jesus as Lord, you say Jesus as Lord. No, you confess, you agree with what is being said. Now, today we have the Bible, so you would say you confess the truth of God's Word about who Christ is. As Paul is writing this, they didn't have all of the New Testament letters. They didn't have all the New Testament books. So he's talking about agreeing with, confessing what the early church believed and taught about Christ, that he is Lord. To acknowledge something is to confess, and normally that's done in public. This wasn't the the kind of Christianity we think about today, where it's private and it's just me, myself, and my Bible, and maybe the Holy Spirit. No, this was a confession that took place in front of others, maybe in front of the government that was going to kill you. But certainly in front of your church, you would confess this truth when you joined the church, when you were baptized. Confessing Jesus as Lord is an outward act, and that matches what's happened inside your heart as God has changed you. As God has saved you, you now confess it. You now say with your mouth the truth of what's happened to you. And it's your own personal confession. It's not just reciting what the church has always believed. It's not confessing the creeds, although that can be important. If the creeds are true, then we believe them. But this is your personal confession, but you don't get to make up what you confess. Paul says you confess Jesus as Lord. You can't just say, well, I believe and a nice God. I believe Jesus was a good teacher. I believe he was a prophet of God, and that's it. No, Paul says, you confess with your mouth something specific. Jesus as Lord. The confession has to be in line with the gospel taught in Scripture and believed by all Christians since the apostles. Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is God. Kyrios in Greek. The emperor was often called Lord, meaning master and ruler of his realm, of his empire. So the Romans would know when this word popped up, he's talking about the ruler who owns it all. And not the emperor. The Christian confess that Jesus is the Lord. The Christian, he or she, must only confess Christ as Lord. He rejected the emperor as Lord and turned to Christ as Lord. Now, the New Testament often uses this word, kurios, to be in the place of the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. And we'll see that later in Joel 2.32. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. But Paul and all the New Testament writers translate that into Greek. From Hebrew Yahweh, everyone who calls on the Lord, kurios. 
So often when Jesus is called Lord, it's not just master and ruler. Although that can be a definition for the word, it's actually saying he is Lord of all. He is the Lord of all creation. He is Yahweh. Jesus is God. You have to confess Jesus is God. You cannot be a Christian, Paul is saying, and the gospel says, unless you confess Jesus as Lord. You can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I reject the deity of Christ. And many people do today. They say, we don't believe that Christ was God. There's, there's books about how Jesus became God, that he was just a man, and it, the Christianity made him a God. No, Jesus is God. You have to confess Jesus as Lord, as Yahweh, as God. And believe, Paul says, in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In your heart, in your innermost being. You can't just say it with your mouth. You have to believe it too. Of course you do. You shouldn't even speak it out loud until you believe it. You have to believe in your heart, your innermost being. That, that place that really defines what you believe and who you are. Your heart. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is God and that God raised him from the dead. Two essentials to salvation. You reject one of those. You can't be saved. You're not a Christian until you believe those. Now, what does it mean, though, to believe? You hear a lot these days, don't we, about believe, about faith. Oh, I have faith. And the question is always faith in what? Faith in whom? Faith in your church. You have faith in other people. You have faith in the government, faith in the society, faith in the world. What kind of faith are we talking about here? What does it mean to believe? That's pretty important. If this is an essential of the gospel that can only come through faith, that, that Christ's righteousness can only come to you if you have faith. What does that mean? Well, I think R.C. Sproul has done the best job of going back in church history and really laying out for us the different types of faith that are taught in the Bible. And they're all, like R.C. Sproul would do, he would use Latin words when he taught these in his lectures. And they're all Latin words to start with. The Latin word noticia speaks of the very basic content of the faith. The knowledge that must be known to even have faith. You've got to have a basic knowledge of the faith, of the Christian faith. What do Christians believe? What is the gospel? Who is Jesus? Noticia speaks of the content of the faith. Knowing something about Jesus would be the very basics of the content of faith. Now, the Apostle John says that's why he wrote his gospel. The gospel of John was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wanted to tell people about Jesus so that unbelievers could be saved and believers could know more of the life of Christ and believe it to be true. This is the content. And we've already seen here what Paul says is the content. Confess Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead. Number two, though, even deeper into this idea of what is faith is the Latin word that Sproul used, ascensus, which has to do with assent. You must assent to those facts being true. It's not enough just to know that Jesus lived, that Jesus died. You have to believe that it's true. You have to believe that he actually is the Son of God, that he came to this earth to save sinners, that he died for sinners. You have to agree with that. You have to believe that it is true. This is why Paul jumps to the resurrection. Because the resurrection includes the death. It includes the cross. 
And really, what's harder today for people to believe that a man died on the cross, even died on the cross for sinners, or that a man rose from the dead after being dead for three days? Every Easter, I see these articles coming out online. This pastor and that pastor rejected the resurrection, and they're not going to preach on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I just think, what kind of church is that that doesn't hold to the resurrection? Paul says that's the basics of the gospel. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts both the death and resurrection in his very shortened version of the gospel. He says, for I delivered to you, talking to the Corinthians, as of first importance, what I also received. When you get it all down to the brass tacks, here is what's important. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's his death. There's the atonement. There's everything the Bible says about that according to the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. We often think of the gospel as just telling people about the death of Christ and what that means for you. And if you believe in him, you will be saved. That's true. But remember, the gospel includes the resurrection of Christ as well. In our modern, liberalized, and progressive world, it's more difficult to believe in the resurrection than even a sacrificial death. Christ was raised from the dead. That's what happens every time Paul starts preaching on the gospel and they run him off. What happened? He got to the resurrection. He got to the resurrection in Athens and they said, no more, no more. We'll hear you some other time. Many false churches teach that Christ died for this or that reason, but only the true church teaches that he was raised on the third day. And according to Romans 425, for our justification. He was raised for our justification. He was raised to vindicate the sacrifice that he made. In other words, how do we know his death took our place? Well, a big proof of that. The main proof of that is that he was raised by God back to life. That he was raised. This is where much of America stops today with faith. Right here. Get the basic facts. I believe they're true. I'm a Christian. They believe God exists. They believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe this for 20-something years. No question about that. I was taught it at church. The whole small town that I grew up in believed it. No question that Jesus lived, that he existed, that he died, that he was raised from the dead even. But this type of faith, if we just stop there, this is not saving faith. It's just an acknowledgement of the facts. It's just an acknowledgement that something is true. James says about the demons... He says to believers, he says, you believe God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons can accept the truth of God's word. The problem is that demons don't submit themselves to God's word. Unbelievers can accept the truth of it, but they don't submit themselves to it. We see this in John's gospel, John 2.23. Now when he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Jesus at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Many people have seen the signs, they heard his teaching, and they believed in this man called Jesus Christ. They believed. Why? When they saw signs that he was doing, it says. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Is that saying that Jesus wasn't letting somebody be saved? No, it's saying that he knew their hearts. He knew they saw the signs, and they said, oh, this must be a man from God. This might even be the Messiah, but they weren't entrusting in him as the Savior. And so he wasn't entrusting himself to them. They had the notitia faith. They understood the content. 
they had the ascent, the ascent to this truth, and yet they did not believe in him as Savior. They did not trust in him. John MacArthur says about this, in other words, a person can hold orthodox theology, lead a moral life, acknowledge his own sin, desire eternal life, be scrupulously religious, and yet go to hell. In John 2.23, he says, those disciples apparently acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in his name. And unlike the Pharisees, they believed that his supernatural powers were from God. They did not submit themselves, though, to him as their Lord and Savior. So what does it mean to believe? Well, it, it means you know something about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. That you confess him as Lord and that he was raised again on the third day. You assent to that truth. And you also have this third type of faith, which is called fiducia in Latin. Fiducia, it means entrusting ourselves into his hands for our salvation. It's not enough that you just know it and acknowledge it to be true, but do you actually trust in him as Savior? That's what Paul's getting at with this. He's saying we have to acknowledge him as Lord, and we have to believe in our heart and entrust ourselves into his hands to save us. This is a a deep personal conviction in the heart. It's not only that he's a savior, but that he will save me if I believe. That he has saved me if I put my faith in him. This is personal trusting in Christ. To put ourselves on an airplane is great, but when we trust that the pilot's going to get us to the, the next destination, it's trusting in him to do so. You can't just acknowledge Christ. You need to trust in Christ. That's all bound up in this Greek word for belief. If you've confessed Jesus as Lord of all creation and you believe in your heart that he was raised up, Paul says, on the third day, then you will be saved. You will be saved. That's how verse 9 ends. What does this mean to be saved? Again, I think of R.C. Sproul who was in college and people were going around evangelizing at the college and one guy came up to him and said, are you saved? And he said, save from what? And the guy said, I don't know. Let me go think about that. And R.C. Sproul turned it into a book, Save From What? Because the problem is we're so used to talking about save, but what are we saved from? And some people say, well, we're saved from ourselves. But we're saved from our sin. We're saved from the, the sin that plagues our life. Yes, we're saved from the power of sin. We're, we're saved from Satan's influence on us, although he still tries as, Christ, as we're Christians to influence us. But the word here is talking about saved from eternal punishment. Saved from the wrath of God. That's what Sproul was trying to get at. The guy was talking about being saved, but he didn't have anything behind that. He didn't understand the wrath of God. And we need to understand saved here is from eternal punishment. Saved, yes, from the sin that plagues us now. Yes, from the guilt that haunts us right now. But from the eternal wrath of God. That's what we really need to be saved from. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's look secondly. The second truth here is the certainty of the gospel promise. We have the simplicity of the gospel message because people try to make it complex. You got to do all these things. And Paul says, no, you just need to believe in your heart and you need to, to confess it with your mouth. But there's also a certainty to the gospel. There's a promise there that we can trust that God will fulfill. And the promise is that you will be saved, and it comes with assurance, 
And it means you will be able to stand on judgment day. That this wrath of God is coming. That judgment day is coming. And those who believe in Christ as their Lord. Those who believe that he was raised for our justification. They will stand on judgment day. Verse 10. For with the heart a person believes. So now now Paul reverses the order and, and does it more like we would think. First you believe, then you say it with your mouth. So with the heart a person believes. And that leads to righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses leading to salvation. So he adds the truth here that believing leads to something. It leads to the righteousness of God that comes through believing in Christ. You receive it. And he's been talking about righteousness throughout the book of Romans. It's one of the main themes of Romans. How do we receive the righteousness of God? Because that's what it means to be saved. You you can't be saved unless you have the righteousness of God. Well, it comes from Christ. It comes from the moment we trust in him, his righteousness gets applied to us. Not our righteousness. That's like filthy rags, the Bible says. That's trash. Uh, That's smelly, bloody rags. No, Christ's righteousness is pure. It's perfect. When you trust in him, you receive that and all of your sins get put on his account. And he died for that. But to receive the righteousness of Christ. Well, that's what happens when you believe. It leads to that righteousness. That's the result. And if you confess with your mouth, that leads to salvation. Now, these are parallel statements. We ought not to think salvation is different here, and it's a a different part of something, and righteousness is different. No, these are parallel statements. Righteousness is salvation. Now, we can talk about timing. Of course, you receive the righteousness now, but you're actually saved from the wrath of God fully when God's wrath comes upon the earth and the day of judgment comes. We need, though, the righteousness of Christ. It's not gained by earning it. It's not by merit. You can't be good enough. You can't say, like so many of us once did, that God will weigh my good and he'll weigh my bad. And we expect our good to be way up here, right? And our bad just to be right here, just a little bit. It doesn't work like that. In fact, Paul spent three chapters in Romans talking about that. He said, none of us are righteous. No, not even one. We've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. That's the comparison. It's not in our minds. That's not the standard what we believe. The standard is not what the world says. If the world says you're a good person, that's not the standard. The standard is what God says. And he says, your self-righteousness is like filthy rags. And Jesus said, be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. And he's the only one who's been perfect. So when we trust in him, we receive his righteousness. But we need to confess it as well. We need to confess our belief in him. We need to not be fearful. A lot of times people say, well, I'm kind of a closet Christian. They won't say, they won't even say that. If it comes out though at some point and you're sort of pressing them on it, they'll say, well, I'm a, I'm a private Christian. I won't tell anybody I'm a Christian, but I am. I don't want my coworkers to know I'm a Christian. I won't join a church because people might see me going there and my family may not like it. But Paul says you need to confess it. You need to tell others about it. He's not talking about evangelism, going and tell everybody about it, although that's in the book of Romans. He's just saying, you need to tell people that you're a Christian. This is not something you hide. This is not something you should be fearful about. Again, we see this come up in the gospel of John, John 12, 42. Let's go there and look at that. Go back to the gospel of John chapter 12. Again, John uses especially these three different layers of belief that R.C. Sproul brought out that I mentioned to you. 
John covers them all in his gospel in different places. And so we see that in 1242, some people who are afraid to confess publicly that Jesus is Lord. John 12:42. nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. They had some level of belief, probably that, that second level, that level of belief that assents to the truth of what is going on and who this is. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the glory of men rather than the glory of God. When it all came down to it, they wanted their image to still be well thought of in the society. They were more worried about what other people might think of them if they said they were a Christian. They were not willing to confess. Now, maybe these are brand new believers and they're weak in the faith, and later they did. We don't know what happened with this group, but you get the idea there that they were scared to say they were Christians. They were scared to confess and say, we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. A believer has to be willing to confess this. That's what Paul means when he says, confess Jesus as Lord. We've got to say it. And that's why we ask our people getting baptized to stand up here and tell you their testimony. It doesn't have to be the most eloquent thing in the world, but every time I hear one, I think I'm in tears. It's their story about what Christ has done for them. Paul talks about a confession. 1 Timothy 6.12, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called And you, talking to Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You confess this in front of many witnesses. It's as if Paul's saying, don't slink back. You keep fighting the good fight of faith. You said in front of all these people that you were a Christian, that you loved the Lord. Well, how can it be that a person can trust in Christ and be saved? Well, Paul now quotes in verse 11, the Old Testament. So we know it's certain because we are reading the book of Romans here. We trust that it is the word of God. We know it is is the word of God. But when Paul's writing this letter, they didn't have the book of Romans yet. It's coming to them as he's writing. They didn't have the New Testament. What they had was the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So how does Paul often make his case? He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament. And when you're talking to people about what you believe, Christian or non-Christian, if you're just saying what you believe, Point to Scripture. You may not always have the Bible with you. Maybe you can pull out your phone and do it. But do like Paul did. Do like Jesus did. Point to Scripture. It's not that they have a problem with you. They have a problem with God's Word. So show them in God's Word where that is. Take the pressure off of you and put it on God's Word. God's Word is powerful. Verse 11, for Scripture says, Scripture says this, He's, he's writing to the Romans. There's Jewish people that are going to hear this, read this, and he, Jewish unbelievers. And he wants them to see this is in the word of God. Whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. There's a certainty here. This idea of faith in the Lord is not something that just came up with Paul. Paul didn't invent the gospel. Jesus brought the gospel and made it clear. But Paul's saying it was talked about in the Old Testament. Whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, 16. We already saw this quote when we looked at Romans 9. We saw this quote in Romans 9, 33. Paul quotes it there. Just as it is written, Behold, 
I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. There's a stone, the stone theology that's spoken of in the Old Testament. That God's going to take a stone, he's going to lay it in Jerusalem. Speaking of the Messiah. And this is going to be a stone of stumbling. People are going to stumble over it. People that are looking for the Messiah, though, and they're going to be looking around somewhere else, and it's right in front of them, and they're going to stumble on it. They're going to be crushed. They're going to hurt themselves. They're going to be harmed, in a sense, by this stone, this rock of offense. But the one who believes on him, he says, will not be put to shame. So that's what he picks up again here in verse 11. Christ is the chief cornerstone, the foundation stone, the believer's stone that he builds his life on. And the person who stands on that cornerstone will not be put to shame at the judgment. He will not be put to shame. He will not be disturbed, as it says in the original in Isaiah 28, 16. Some translations do it differently with 20, uh, Isaiah 28, 16. If you go back there, your translation may have something different. He who believes in it will not uh, in, be in a haste, be in a hurry, will not panic, will be unshakable. The point is that the one who trusts in the Lord won't panic at the judgment because he has a foundation that's sure. It's not going to crumble. You see, everyone else that doesn't have Christ as Savior, their foundation, what they trusted in, what they built their life on, will crumble. It'll be like a house of cards. It'll just disappear. There's nothing to stand on. God will say, why should I let you into my heaven? And you'll say, well, look at this wonderful house of cards that I'm standing on. And then you'll just fall right through. But the believer has a firm foundation. The believer has Christ as the rock to stand upon. They will not be put to shame if they believe in him. Shame. The idea that a person is shamed at the judgment. That all that they trusted in will come to naught. It will be shameful to them. But not for the believer. Paul's talked about shame already in Romans 5.5. 5. He says, hope does not put to shame. Hope in Christ, in God, does not put to shame. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. One of the reasons you know you're not going to be put to shame at the judgment is because you have the Holy Spirit. Another one here in Romans 10 is because you have believed in Christ, the cornerstone. You will not be shaken. That's the idea. When God closely examines your life and what you believe, those who trusted in Christ for their righteousness will stand firm and not be shaken. An old church father said on the day of judgment, when everything will be examined, and all false opinions and teachings will be overthrown, then those who believe in Christ will rejoice, seeing it revealed to all that what they believed is true and what was thought to be foolish was wise. The day of judgment is coming. What will you stand on at the day of judgment? That's what Paul wants to remind these Romans about and, and any unbelieving Jews who are reading this section because he's talking about Israel. What will you stand on? Will you stand on all your good works or will you stand on the rock, which is Christ? Okay, point number three, we looked at the first truth was the simplicity of the gospel. Then we looked at the certainty of the gospel promise. Now let's look at the universality of the gospel scope. The universality of the gospel scope. The gospel 
extends to a wide range of people. It's not just to Jews. It's not just to Americans. It's not just to Texans. It's not just to conservative Texans. It's not just to certain political indulgences that people have. It extends to a wide range of people. It applies to all people groups. That's what I mean by universality. I don't mean universalism. Universalism is the belief that all people will be saved. No, the universality of the scope says that the gospel is for all people. It is the only way of salvation and it goes out to all people. That's what Paul opens up here in 12 through 13. It does not mean that all people will be saved. We know some reject the faith. We know in, verse, in chapter 9 of Romans, not everyone has been chosen by God. But Paul says this is the only gospel. doesn't matter whether the person is a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one gospel. There's only one Lord. There's only one way of salvation. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The Jews were thinking, well, we have the Old Testament. God has chosen us as a nation. God has given all these promises to our forefathers. The good news of salvation is for us. And Paul, what are you doing coming along, talking to these Greeks, talking to these Romans, talking to these Gentile peoples when the Messiah is supposed to be for us? But he's already told us way back at the beginning of Romans, if you go back to 1.16, he said God had given him this task. If you read the book of Acts, you know that Christ spoke to Paul, that, that Christ told Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so he writes this letter at the very beginning. He gives his introduction, 116, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, meaning that's where he's going to go. He's going to take it to the Jews who were given this promise by their forefathers, but also to the Greek. And that's what Paul would do. He would come into a town, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he would first stop at the synagogue and tell them, hey, your Messiah has come. Here's the good news. Then they would often kick him out and he would go to the Gentiles. A bunch of people would get saved. The Jews would get mad because here's this Jewish preacher preaching to the Gentiles and they're trusting in God. And that would cause all kinds of problems in those cities. Go forward to chapter 3 of Romans and verse 22. Again, he's speaking now of the good news the righteousness that comes through faith. He's just told us the bad news in in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of how sinful mankind is. And now he's getting into the good news. And he says in verse 22 of chapter 3, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. There's no distinction. And then look at the next verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. One of the reasons that the gospel is not just for the Jew is because not only is the Jew a sinner, but all mankind is sinful. No one is righteous, not even one. There is no distinction. That's what Paul also says in verse 12 of chapter 10. Whether Jew or Gentile, all those who receive God's righteousness start out with the same need for it. They have the same need, but everyone who believes is what he has said. There's no distinction. The only qualification is that you believe. It doesn't matter if you're born a Gentile or born a Jew. What matters is that you believe. Now, no one's better off than the other. That's one of the cases he's making here. No one's better off. The Jew's not better off necessarily because they start out in the same moral state. We're all sinners. Paul's already developed that. He said, there's no difference in our standing before God. We're all guilty. 
There's no difference in what is required to make us right before God. Only God's righteousness will do that. There's no distinction in our means by which we come to that salvation. That's through Christ's atonement. And then right here, he adds a new one to the list. For the same Lord is Lord of all. We have the exact same way of salvation, the only way of salvation, because we have the same Lord. The Lord of the Jews is also the Lord that created the Gentiles. There's not two Lords. There's not the God of the Gentiles and the God of the Jews. There's only one true God. And Paul says, we know there's only one way of salvation. There's not obey the law for the Gentiles and trust in Christ, or trust in Christ for the Gentiles and obey the law for the Jews. There's not two ways. There's one way. There's a preacher in San Antonio. I won't say his name, but he wrote a book and then he had to retract what he wrote. And then he said some things later that pretty much cite what he wrote in the book. And he said, for the Jews, they don't need the Messiah because they can obey the law. They can follow the commands. But the Gentiles, that's who the Messiah was really for. That's called bicovenantalism. There's two covenants and you can choose sort of which one depending on your birth. And you can be a Jew and the old covenant and, and be a Gentile and go through the new covenant. Paul says, no, no, there's one God and he's the Lord of all. And he's the Lord that's abounding in riches for all who call on him. God didn't come up with two ways of salvation. It's one way. A lot of people uh, misunderstand, misinterpret the Old Testament. We don't have time to, to go into that. I've, I've preached on the law many times as we've gone through Romans. So if you want to look on the website for that, there's more there. But this is the Lord of all who's abounding in riches. God's not going to run out of grace for the Gentiles. He's not just got a certain amount reserved for the Jews and then he's all out. No more left. Paul says, don't worry about that. Don't be concerned that God's grace is not enough to bring the believing Gentiles in. And Colossians 1.27, Paul writes, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul has been sent to the Gentiles to proclaim the gospel, and Christ is rich. He is abounding in riches. He has plenty of grace, plenty of mercy for anyone who calls on him. That's the last verse here in verse 13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We've already seen that brought out in Paul's words. Now, though, he's backing it up with another Old Testament passage, this time from Joel 2.32. The prophet Joel spoke of a remnant that is going to be saved when God's wrath comes upon the world. In that day, in the last day, God's wrath is going to come upon the earth to judge it. But there will be a remnant, a, a small group of Jews who believe in the Lord for salvation. They call upon his name. And Paul says that also applies now to Gentiles. It's really always applied to Gentiles, but the Gentiles weren't flocking into Jerusalem and the Jews were messing it all up with their bad behavior. And now though, the apostles are taking the gospel out. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all you need to know, he says, about getting the righteousness of God. That's the only way. Whether you were born in the days of Abraham, whether you were born in the days of David, whether you were born in the days of Isaiah or Jonah, or Jesus, or Paul. There's only one way. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever believes, that's calling upon the name of the Lord. You call out to the Lord and say, I cannot save myself. I cannot do it. 
I call upon you, Lord, to do it for me. So many testimonies I've heard like that. I had to come to the end of myself, they say. I had to to get to the bottom. The Lord made sure I got to the bottom. I was homeless. I was on drugs and about to take my life. My marriage was a complete wreck. I thought I was so important because I had all this money and wealth. And then I realized I had nothing. You call upon the Lord, Paul says, and you will be saved. That's universal. It goes out to everyone, anyone who calls upon the Lord. That's why God had promised Abraham that yes, he would bless Abraham. And yes, he would bless Abraham's descendants. But through Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth, not just the Jewish family of Abraham, but all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the gospel in a nutshell to Abraham. Maybe you're sitting here today and you think, this doesn't really apply to me. I've done too much sin. God's not going to forgive me. I've not been a good person. I just came to this church for the first time. I don't even know why I'm here. Let me cite the words of Charles Spurgeon. I can't do better than this. Famous preacher of the 19th century, talking about this verse, he says, Do you say, I'm excluded? Surely you cannot mean that he would save me. Hark you, Spurgeon says. It says here in the text, whosoever. That's old King James for whoever, okay? Whosoever. Whosoever is a great wide door and lets in big sinners. Oh, surely if it says whosoever, you're not excluded if you call. There's the point. Oh, I would to God, I might know that some soul could lay hold on this promise today. And he he looks at his congregation as he's preaching. He says, where are you? Talking to these people. Are you standing away among the crowd there or sitting here in the body of the hall or in the topmost gallery? Are you feeling your sins? Do you shed tears in secret on account of them? Do you lament your iniquities? Oh, take his promise, whosoever, sweet whosoever, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Say thus. The devil says it's of no use for you to call. You have been a drunkard. Tell him it says whosoever. Nay, says the evil spirit, it is of no use for you. You have never been to hear a sermon. You've never been to the house of God. It's been 10 years since you've been to church. Tell him it says whosoever. No, says Satan. Remember the sins of last night and how you have come up to the church today stained with lust. Tell the devil it says whosoever and that it is a foul falsehood of his that you can call on God and yet be lost. If you call on God today, if you're here today and you're not a believer, or you're, you're, you have this first two levels. You, you believe in the facts. You admit they're true, but you've never put your trust in Christ then call on him. It says whoever. No matter the sins you've committed this morning, last night, last week, in your whole life. Paul was a great sinner. He killed Christians and he loved it. And then God changed his heart one day. That could be you, unbeliever. For the believers here today, we're reminded once again of what God has done for us. It's amazing what he's done for us. So now let's thank him as we pray. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. As we take communion in the minute, Jesus, we, we pray that it will once again impact us to think of your death for us on the cross. The gospel is so sweet to us. We can't do anything for ourselves. You've done it all. And I pray for the believers in the room that we would trust in you even more each day. 
We did so for saving faith and help us to grow in our faith. We believe. Help us when we doubt. Help our unbelief. And for those who are not saved here, they're here, they're listening, work in their hearts, O oh Lord. You came to save sinners. We trust that you will. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.